Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1? Hebrews chapter 1. This sermon is entitled, Exalted Above All Angels. And we are only probably going to get through one point. Um, There are six points through this sermon, and um, I don't want to rush through this. This is a precious passage, even as Mike was reading it, it still causes you to stop and tremble just a bit. This is the Savior, this is Christ who came down for you and me, condescended to be below creation, under angels, came back up for you and me. So why don't we pray together. I just love to be with the saints, love to be with you guys, and just to grow in Christ together. Isn't this just a wonderful pilgrim walk we have together? If I'm, if I'm exhausted, you can pick me up, and if you're exhausted, I can pick you up by the power of Christ. Amen. Father, we, we come, and as I dwell on this passage, as I was studying it and not really quite knowing what it was, it started to explode. How great your son is. And we're so caught up with our lives, caught up with what we're doing, and yet your son has done the most miraculous thing. He has come, he put on flesh to die on our behalf. He rose from the dead, a small feat for the Son of Man. He rose from the dead to defeat the grave, to defeat Satan. He's exalted above the angels. We pray, help us to get a glimpse of that this morning, a taste of that, God. Send your spirit to take the things of Christ and Glorify him in our hearts, Lord. If there's rebellion in our hearts, would you soften it? If Christ uh, does, we have not yielded areas of our life to him, we pray we would yield it. If there are those who don't know you, we pray you would save them. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's oftentimes a lot of fascination with angels. Um, The text here, if you noticed, um, as I go through in verse 4, one of the principles of interpretation when you're looking at Scripture, not the only one, but a principle of interpretation, of figuring out what the Bible is about, what each passage is about, is when we're looking from verses 4 to 14, notice the repetition of the words. Verse 4 having become as much better than the angels. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say? Verse 6, let the angels of God worship him. Verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Notice verse 13, by which, but to which of the angels has he ever said? 
So surely there must be something here in the text about angels. Now, I personally don't like TV shows or movies with angels. I don't like it. I don't like it because it's inaccurate and it doesn't show God's glory and it doesn't show it in its full capacity. And oftentimes they play fast and loose with what an angel should be. Um, in the 80s, there was a there was this, uh, TV drama called Highway to Heaven. Michael Landon uh, was on there. I used to watch that because I just thought he was cool. Um, he was a probationary ex-cop who turned into an angel to earn his wings. And in the 90s, there was a series called Touched by an Angel in the, uh, focused on the angel's good deeds to tell folks messages from God where the scriptures are very, very clear. This is the message from God. The angels have already, uh, if they have been used, have already been done. The work is done. Sometimes when you listen to Christian radio, which sometimes I don't even recommend you do, it's kind of crazy out there. You have good preaching, then you have bad preaching. Uh, I remember this woman was on there, and uh, this woman was asking about angels. She wanted to know more. She wanted to meet one. She was fascinated by one. She was convinced that she met one. She was convinced that everyone had a guardian angel. And yet in her speech, there was no talk of sin, redemption, Christ, forgiveness, eternal life. There was nothing about that. It was simply a fascination about angels. Personally, I've met folks who are fascinated by angels. They have statues of angels in their homes. Precious moment angels all over the place. Angel pendants. Tattoos of angels. They read books on angels. And yet, sadly, they're not fascinated by Christ and his scripture. They see no beauty in the redeemed people of God and purchased, who have been purchased by Christ. They miss the whole point. There is no mention of Christ. Angels are not the focus of Scripture. Yea, the whole universe. Christ is. Angels bow down to Christ. One of the most insidious and conniving plan of the enemy is simply overemphasizing. Not even a denial of truth, but rather an overemphasizing such that you don't see Christ. One doctrine rears its ugly head and it becomes this ogre that you can't even see Christ anymore. Well, some folks see angels that way. I have this whole thick, systematic idea of what angels are. And I even go beyond scripture and I speak to people's experiences about angels. And yet, there's no real focus on Christ. One of my... Uh, favorite teachers, he always told me to Angelo, he said, Angelo, major on the majors. Major on the majors. Okay? And what he meant by that is, what is the central three theme of Scripture? It is man's redemption by the God-man who came in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. That is the major thing. That is a focus of what we are to do. Major on the majors. And so even as we see this scripture, as we see it's all uh, riddled with angels, even the writer of Hebrews is writing this to convince you that Christ is better than angels. God gave this passage so you would worship Christ above all else, including angels. Now, in order for us to understand it, there are six, really, six 
points to this. I'm only probably going to go through one today. But we have to understand the background. And I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't correct error with more error. In Christianity, we do that all the time. Here's an error. Oh, I'm going to correct it with more error. Okay? We're not going to correct our idea of angels and the superiority of Christ, of people's abuse of angelology. We're not going to correct that with more error. So why all the fuss over angels? Well, we could commit that error, battling it with another error. So in concern for truth, we need to first quickly review what the Bible actually teaches about angels. Now, I took a lot of this from commentaries and systematic theologies, and just to give us a background. You have to remember, who is the writer of Hebrews writing to? He is writing to mostly Jews who have come to Christ. Jews who have a background in the synagogues, who have an idea of what the spiritual realm is. Now, Angels are spirit beings, and they do not have flesh and bones. They have an appearance of human form. Even in Hebrews 13.2, we see that sometimes you may even entertain some without knowing. Right? Angels are intelligent, and they have emotions. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, the Bible says that every time someone comes to Christ, the angels rejoice. That's why we should have parties too, right? There's a baptism. We should have a party. Because someone has said, I have come to Christ. I've been saved. Angels cannot marry or procreate. Matthew chapter 22 says that clearly uh, all of the angels that were ever created were created at the same time, even the ones that have fallen. So there's no adding of angels nor subtracting of angels. The Bible says that there, a third of all angels fell when Lucifer fell. And a third of them went with him. Angels cannot die. The fallen ones are judged, Revelation chapter 12. They were created before man, so they were older than men. There are numerous in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 5. It says that there are thousands upon thousands and myriads and myriads upon myriads of them. Colossians tells us that they're organized by ranks and divisions, principalities, powers, authorities. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we struggle against the spiritual realm, that there is this battle that the Christian does not see. He does not see it, and all we have to do is focus on Christ and His Word. I don't need to mess with angels or demons or anything like that. I just need to look at Christ. Angels obey and serve God. The fallen ones led by Lucifer fell. The Bible describes folks as sometimes misunderstanding or overemphasizing angels. And this was what the writer of Hebrews was writing to. Jews had come to a saving faith, but they have all this background beliefs, this background baggage. And this is very common. When you come to Christ, not all things are ironed out. When you come to Christ, you don't have all your doctrine right. There are some things that you see right away, that Christ is my life, that I am forgiven in Jesus, that my life has been changed, right? That there's only salvation in Christ, but there's still other things that need to be worked out. And this is called growth. This is called sanctification 
in the truth. And so he's writing to them because they're thinking, okay, Jesus is fantastic, but, you know, we have these angels. They're the ones who have the pendants, right? They had an overemphasis on angels that they needed to deal with. The Jewish view of angels was prevalent, and it was colored by rabbinical interpretations, popular writings. They, they had the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Old Testament, which many uh, rabbis would write the commentary on the margins. And then other rabbis would come and write commentary about the commentary on the margins. And then other rabbis would write commentary on the commentary of the commentary about on the margins. And so there's this tradition of what they believe, some biblical, some kind of quasi-biblical, some a little bit biblical with more embellishments. The writer had to teach clearly on angels and the superiority of Christ over and above all created beings. See, sometimes in the Jewish mindset, they believe that God did nothing without consulting them, that he actually had to talk to them. In Genesis 1-2, if you remember when God said, let us, make, uh, let us make man in our image, and we know that to be the triune Godhead in council, speaking to each, to each other, right? Let us make man in our image, because man is made in God's image, right? Some folks say, oh no, he was talking to the angels, but that doesn't make sense because we know that man was made in God's image, not in an angel's image right? angels they they had a tradition that people that angels controlled stars and calendar angels controlled time they had a tradition uh that angels controlled the weather some angels were wardens of jail of jail of hell itself and so uh some believe that the jews received the old covenant from god by angels and stephen even appealed to this look at what Look with me to Acts chapter 7, and you'll see, you'll see it bleed through Acts chapter 7. Right before Stephen was about to be stoned, you notice he says in verse 51... You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit you are doing just as your fathers did. And what he's saying there is the word of God that comes through the Holy Spirit first by the prophets, okay? And every time someone doesn't listen to the word of God, they are actually resisting the Holy Spirit's own revelation of who God is. So you're resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced and the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Verse 53, look at this little verse tucked away. You have received the law as ordained by angels. And yet, did not keep it. So they're in their belief that the angels actually God used angels to deliver the law. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 3. Very interesting in Galatians chapter 3. Now, did God use angels? He probably did. Is that the focus of it? No, not at all. 
Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, he says here, Why the law then? It has, been, it has added because of transgressions, having been, look at this verse, ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, you see the mixture of that. You see scripture. You see good beliefs. And you see a mixture of other things. In Colossians, you add to that the Gnostic heresy that Jesus, they thought that Jesus was an angel. Right? And that's why Paul said, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So in the midst of all of this, the writer of Hebrews says, hey, 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 we need to stop, okay? Because you guys think there are other beings who are more, that are higher than Christ because he put on flesh. You think they are higher than Christ, that they are more exalted, that they are more powerful. Let me tell you and let me teach you from your own scriptures. And he uses seven scriptures to describe the superiority of Christ over the angels. And such that we would look at the text and know that there is no one greater than Christ. Nothing greater than Christ. No power greater than Christ. No demonic realm greater than Christ. Such that we would see not only the material world, but the spiritual realm and know that everything bows to Christ or will bow to Christ. Now, in explaining the superiority of Christ over and above all angels, the writer of Hebrews gives us six very forceful arguments as to why you should worship Christ with abandon. Since this section is so long, we're just going to go through a portion of those arguments. We're going to go through the first one. First, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Let me read that again. We've been a lot of places already. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I've begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Number one, worship Christ because he is fully and completely God. Worship Christ because he is fully and, and completely God. And there's a couple elements here as we see in the scriptures. First, his condescension. And when I say his condescension, that means Jesus is coming down. And he came down, what we call the doctrine of the incarnation, that he would put on flesh to come to this earth. God himself. We ought to, we ought to stop and tremble at this. It is a, notice he says, having become as much better than angels. Okay. Now the word there, sometimes people in uh, would get confused. They say, oh, see? See right there? That means that Jesus was created, having become. Um, in uh, the King James Version, it's translated, having, having been made. But here, it's having become. And it's a better translation. It's a fuller meaning for us to understand because there are two separate different verbs, right? In the Greek, one verb is to really to form and to make. And the second one is to become, right? 
And this implies that he was lower than the angels. Notice he says, having become as much better than the angels. But what happened? Notice he says here, he's the radiance of his glory, verse 3, and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Clearly, he's calling himself equal with God, right? When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so he's saying he made purifications. When did he do that? When he came down in the flesh to die for the sins of man. He says he made purification of sins. And here's the, here's the model in scripture. You'll see this in Philippians. You'll see this elsewhere. That he suffers and then the glories to follow. So Jesus Christ went down and then went back up. And, the, and that's the direction of Christ. For him, it is glorious to come down, you see. For men, we don't see it that way. For him, it is glorious to come down. He came down for a little while underneath the rank of angels. You got to imagine God of the universe was a baby in a stinky manger. He came down having become as much better than the angels. And then this is clarified in chapter 2. Notice in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2 in verse 9, he says, But we do see him who was made, here it goes, for a little while lower than the angels. A little while in rank, right? Did he have the rank? Did he, did he change anything of his essence, of his nature? No. But he humbled himself. He condescended, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It implies that he was lower than him, lower than them. And then he says, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. All this means is that because of his righteous life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, he accomplished this and once again went high. The way up with Christ is down. Christ was exalted, has, had the radiance of the Father, the exact representation. He went low, he died, he resurrected, thereby defeating death and the devil, and once again having become, he's inherited a more excellent name than they. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus gained another name. It doesn't mean that, Oh, we just tack another name onto him. What that means is he is recognized as the conqueror, as the savior of his people, the one who made purification for sins. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be clean? Don't you want to be forgiven? Don't you want your sins to be removed? There's only one place. Buddha doesn't have it. Muhammad doesn't have it because no one who is worthy came down to make purification for sins. His deity. His deity. Then it turns to say here, for to which of the angel did he ever say, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. My point for this section, verses 4 or 5, 
is worship Christ because he's fully and completely God. And at the first glance, you would say, Angelo, I don't get it from here. How did you get this from this? In our, uh, in our class, uh, uh, in our shepherd's training class that I have on Saturday mornings, we always want and we always argue to surrender to the text, right? We always say surrender to the text. That means your sermon, its points, everything must come out of the text, not from the air. You don't pull it out and bring it here. The text is what drives the sermon. Right? The meaning of what, it's all based on this word begotten. Okay? Begotten. And this title, son. So we say worship Christ because he's fully and completely God. We talked about his condescension, but now we're going to talk about his deity. His deity. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Now, when we look at the Son of God, we have to understand that the title itself carries the meaning. When you say Son of God, it doesn't mean any less than God. It doesn't mean any uh, degree fallen from God. It doesn't mean he's a created God. It doesn't mean he is a God, not almighty God. It means he is equal with God. He shares of the same essence. And when we talk about Trinity, we're saying that God shares in all the same attributes and essence, everything that makes God, he shares that together in three different persons. And three different persons exist, but they share the same attributes. And so, to, to show you that this title, Son of God, this word Son, really means that he is equal with God, not less than God, not uh, inferior to God, but he is equal to God. Uh, there's many texts, but I can show it to you. Notice in John chapter 5. Uh, I've shared this text many times in John chapter 5. This, I love this that it's clear because even the enemies of Christ understand. One of the best evidences, especially even in the courtroom, one of the best evidences of anything to prove a point is when your enemies actually agree. Okay. Notice in Ephesians, uh, excuse me, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And Jesus says, "My verse 17 my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, to us, or maybe to some new age guru, they would look at that and spiritualize the language and say, oh, what he means is that he just has a close relationship. It's beyond a close relationship. When Jesus says he is my father, he's saying I am God. Notice he says here, verse 18, and this is how they understood it. Verse 18, he says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father. How did they understand it? Making himself equal with God. They weren't going to kill him because he was close to God. They weren't going to kill him because they said he was he knew the principles of God or knew the scripture of God or he meditated and prayed a lot to God. They were going to kill him because he claimed to be God. And so when someone says, when Jesus said he is the son of God, he says, I 
am exactly who the Father is. And that is exactly the theme of Hebrews chapter 1. He is the exact representation of his nature. Now, here's a question, and we have to answer this. Going back to Hebrews. Going back to Hebrews. This is holy ground, brothers and sisters, isn't it? This makes you sing and rejoice. And this is a foreign language for those people who don't know him. They don't see the wonder and the majesty. And we pray that many will. Notice in uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. He says, Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Sonship is deity. There's our point, right? Sonship is deity. Right? And now, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm chapter 2 in his understanding of what that meant. Psalm chapter 2 was very clear. He says, Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Repeating what he just said. Sonship is deity. Sonship is deity. When was Jesus, the Son of God. It says here, today, now there, there can be some misconstruing here. Okay? When folks look at that, some people could say, well, you see, today it seems to indicate that he wasn't the Son of God before, and now he is. There was one day that he wasn't, and now he is. There might be a question like that. And, and Christianity is divided into two different camps. I just don't think that's what the scriptures bear. Notice in uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where it is quoted, Psalm chapter 2. When did Jesus become the Son of God? And I will argue to you, Jesus was always the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. If you were to write down a theological term, this is called the eternal sonship of God or the eternal generation of the Son, right? Psalm chapter 2, just open your Bible, crack it open right to the middle, and you'll hit the Psalms. That's how I know how to find Psalms, right? Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us... Tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this right here. He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord scoffs at him. If you think your rebellion is not being seen, you think your rebellion, you saying you don't, say, he's saying, I am tearing away the fetters. Cast away, I don't want to follow God. I don't want to listen to God. I don't want God to be over me. You think you actually are going to be free? The Bible says the Lord laughs at you. He scoffs at you. He scoffs at your foolishness. When you could turn to love. He says here, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. And now, verse 7, here it is. I will surely tell 
of the decree of the Lord, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the language here now in verse 7, what is he talking about? He's talking about this decree, this eternal decree that has always existed. And so the language here, the word today, is a poetic form of that word. It's a poetic use of that word. It's a, an, an analogy. He's saying here, this son who will forever, using the term of decree, forever existed. And I will call you my son. He speaks in relation to the eternal decree of God as it relates to eternity. It's poetic language as to point to the eternity rather than a point in time. And we figuratively say this a lot. We, we understand this to be, we, we play with time and we play with language when we talk about it. Like, say, for instance, if you wanted something right away, right? Uh, I needed it last Tuesday. Now, did I really need it last Tuesday? No, it meant I really needed it, right? I'm bending language in a poetic way to say that I really needed it. I needed it last Friday, right? I'm not really meaning it I needed it on Friday. I just mean that I really need it. So he's, he's using language in a poetic way. He's saying that Jesus, by his decree, was always the son. This is the doctrine of eternal sonship or eternal generation. You notice also, John chapter 5, verse 26. Go to John chapter 5 and verse 26. This text that we're reading in Hebrews is so rich. We have to take our time in John chapter 5. Verse 26, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice and the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. The Father, this is called the Asadi of God. He is self-existent. He needs nothing. And the Son has the same essence. He is self-existent. He needs nothing. No, you weren't created by God because he was lonely. That is false. You were created by God for his glory. You weren't created by God because he needed you. He needed you to make a choice. No, you were created by God to show his excellency. And so now we see that he, has, he, has, he exists in himself. He always existed, and he became begotten. And so we're going to come to this term, begotten. But notice, just to nail the coffin in with, a, uh, just to nail the coffin down, go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we'll see here that the word begotten does not mean when it originated. The word begotten means one of a kind, okay? One of a kind, of his essence. Notice that John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In verse 14, he says here, 
and the Word, that is Christ, right? Became flesh, that is the incarnation. Dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory as, here it is, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here is the evidence here. Begotten as it pertains to creation. Yes, it talks about the origin. But begotten as it pertains to Jesus simply means his uniqueness, his sharing of essence with God the Father. Why, how can I say this from this verse, verse 14? Notice, the word became flesh. This means that the word preexisted. The word was always there. Jesus Christ was always there. He just came and put on flesh. And now, it says here, he is glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So then we have to study what does begotten mean. Now, in Genesis, we know that the word begotten or really means according to its kind, right? According to its kind. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 that the animals made according to their kind. Uh, let, me, let me turn you to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. He is the eternal son. Genesis chapter 1 verse 11 and 12. Here's this idea of begotten. Okay? Really, the emphasis of begotten is coming after that kind. Right? Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit, here it is, after their kind with seed in them. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Verse 22, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. God saw that it was good. Now, in created order, we understand that to be origin. But when it comes to Christ... What it has to do is that Christ, as one commentator put it, has absolute oneness of essence between the Father and the Son. That the language of Father and Son is to show that they share the same essence. We have a metaphor, a little metaphor right, of this, just a slight metaphor. When I look at Titus and I know that he is begotten of Andre. There's not a doubt, right? He shares, in a little caricature, he shares some of those attributes, but not fully, right? But is Titus after the kind of Andre? Oh, of course. 
Is he begotten of Andre? Yes, he is. Why? Because he shares of some of those attributes. And we see that as a metaphor in the family. But as it pertains to Jesus Christ and God the Father, he shares in the fullness of those attributes. Jesus is not created. He shares in the fullness of his love, the fullness of his faithfulness, the fullness of his power, the fullness of his majesty after the kind of God the Father. Even in his baptism, in his declaration, God the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It doesn't mean that now after the baptism, he's become my son. He has always been my son, sharing in the same essence. But now I want the world to know I approve of his mission. I am now inaugurating him of his ministry. I, uh, uh, one commentator says, it is crucial to recall that one who is exalted as the son of God in power was already the son before the angels. And in, in closing, as we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and I, I know we had to just speak about this, this one point. Worship Christ because he is fully and completely God. 